Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout. When there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. The one president, I just don't want to be Herbert Hoover. He wishes he was Herbert Hoover, but ranks significantly higher than Trump in a new historian's poll of the best and worst presidents. Our presidential historian, Michael Beschloss, will join me. Also on this Moral Monday, Waking the Sleeping Giant, Bishop William Barber joins me on his new effort to mobilize millions of poor voters. Plus, more anti-abortion lunacy from the right as the Alabama Supreme Court rules that frozen embryos are children, as Trump reportedly pushes for a 16-week national abortion ban. But we begin tonight with courage versus cowardice. In the days since Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny's death was announced, ordinary Russians are picking up the mantle of courage, even in the face of a crackdown from the regime of Russian dictator Vladimir Putin. Across Russia, more than 400 people have been detained at tributes and memorials to Navalny in the most significant wave of arrests since protests against the war in Ukraine in September of 2022. By risking arrest to mourn the martyred opposition leader, Navalny's supporters provided a fitting tribute to the man who returned to Russia knowing he would be arrested and probably killed, but who never gave in to evil. Even as his last months in a Siberian gulag took its toll, Navalny never lost his sense of purpose or his sense of humor. The New York Times reports, confined to cold concrete cells and often alone with his books, Navalny sought solace in letters. He wrote to one acquaintance in July that no one could understand Russian prison life without having been here, adding in his deadpan humor, but there's no need to be here. Now that Navalny's gone, his supporters show he'll live on as a symbol of their resistance to Putin, a resistance that also lives on in another top opposition figure, Vladimir Karamurza, serving a 25-year sentence for criticizing Putin. Karamurza wrote in the Washington Post that even from his solitary cell in a special regime prison colony, he can see Putin's weakness in the upcoming election. There's also the stunning bravery of Alexei Navalny's widow, Yulia, who accuses the Kremlin of hiding her husband's body to cover up his murder. She released a video today vowing to carry on her husband's fight against Putin, telling supporters, I am not afraid and you shouldn't be afraid. By speaking truth to power at the risk of becoming Putin's next target, Yulia Navalnya, just like her late husband and Vladimir Karamurza, join in the company of the heroes of our American civil rights era, like Martin, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers in a previous generation, who chose courage in the face of real oppression and violence and imprisonment and, yes, certain death. 
Yulia Navalnya also joins Merle Evers Williams, who has continued her martyred husband's civil rights work for more than 60 years now after his death. Contrast that with Republicans in our country who continue to genuflect to a man whose reaction to Navalny's murder was to make it about himself. In his first comments on social media nearly three days after Navalny's death, the former president related his own legal woes to the Russian patriot's death. Donald Trump used his screed to fearmonger about what he calls our failing nation. And there's legitimate reason to be afraid of Donald Trump and his repeated pledges to take America down the same path of autocracy as his beloved Vladimir Putin in Russia, only with self with less self-awareness. A former official in Trump's White House told Jonathan Carl for his book that Trump lacks any shred of human decency, humility or caring. He is morally bankrupt, breathtakingly dishonest, lethally incompetent and stunningly ignorant of virtually anything related to governing, history, geography, human events or world affairs. He is a traitor and a malignancy in our nation and represents a clear and present danger to our democracy and to the rule of law. We've already seen the fruits of the danger of Donald Trump, not just in his supporters' attack on the Capitol on January 6th, but last week, when former Georgia Governor Roy Barnes testified that he declined to serve as a special prosecutor in Trump's Georgia election interference case. Why? Because of threats. I told uh, D.A. Willis I didn't I'd live with uh, bodyguards uh, for four years and I didn't like it. And I wasn't going to live with bodyguards for the rest of my life. There were even Republicans in Congress who told their colleagues that fear is what stopped them from voting for impeachment against Trump after he incited an insurrection. Senator Mitt Romney told The Atlantic that a Republican congressman confided in him that he wanted to vote for Trump's second impeachment, but chose not to out of fear for his family's safety. The congressman reasoned that Trump would be impeached by House Democrats with or without him. Why put his wife and children at risk if it wouldn't change the outcome? Another one of the few Republicans willing to tell the truth about Trump, Liz Cheney, has also said that Republican colleagues told her that they voted against impeaching him out of fear for their lives. On Sunday, she slammed Republicans for following Trump on his threats against NATO and the extended silence following the death of Alexei Navalny. When you think about Donald Trump, for example, pledging retribution, um, what Vladimir Putin did to Navalny is what retribution looks like in a country where the leader is not subject to the rule of law. Um, and, and I think that we have to take Donald Trump very seriously. We have to take seriously the extent to which, um, you know, you've now got a Putin wing of the Republican Party. Uh, I believe the issue this election cycle is making sure the Putin wing of the Republican Party does not take over the West Wing of the White House. Joining me now is Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia and MSNBC international affairs analyst, and Charlie Sykes, MSNBC contributor and columnist. Thank you both for being here, gentlemen. I do want to start with you, Michael McFall, Ambassador McFall. 
Um, I, you know, I guess because I just finished writing a book about Medgar Evers and Merle Evers Williams, it's just on my mind, this idea of, of courage in the face of what is n- near certain death. Uh, people who stay or go into a place where they know that they are physically at risk because of their love of country, love of their family, just love of, 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 of good things, of, of good and of right. Uh, Alexei Navalny, um, went into Russia knowing he would likely be arrested, knowing he would likely be killed. He is that kind of figure. What do you make of how alone he sort of is in terms of American conservatives who I think a generation ago would have been lauding him um, in his sacrifice, but today are largely silent? And tell us what was he like? What was he like as a person? Well, Joy, to your first question, I'm glad you brought up those historical examples. That's exactly the kind of person we should be comparing Alexei Navalny to. Um, And you're right. He knew the risks. I was talking to him right before he went back, corresponding with him. He knew exactly the risk you're talking about. The greatest burden he had, to be honest, was not about himself, but about being the absent father about being the absent husband that w- that he knew was likely to happen and the burden on his family. It was not about his own fate. Um, uh, and tragically, that burden has become even greater, though, as you noted, Yulia has already decided, Yulia Navalny, that she is going to play the role of leading this movement. Uh, doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, and she is a very strong, competent, capable person to do so. It's just tragic. She has to do so under these circumstances. You know, with respect to Alexei, it's a big question you asked your second one. I would just say a couple of things. You know, I knew him for a long time, but because of politics, like when I was ambassador, we never met once because it was bad for his political career. Uh, he, we would joke about it and we ran into each other one time at a anniversary meeting for the Moscow Times. But he didn't want to be accused of being a puppet of the United States. Uh, After I got out of the government, I became closer to his family because his daughter goes to school here at Stanford. I just saw Yulia the night before uh, Alexei was killed uh, in Munich. I saw her, talked to her the day after and saw her. Um, And getting to know them, I would say this is a world historic figure. You don't get a chance to meet many of them in life. And I have in my time in life. I also write about them because I write about democracy movements and I teach courses on democratization. He is one of those figures. He had the intelligence. He had the charisma. Extremely funny. He was extremely principled uh, and courageous. And he knew that that his ideas were better than Putin's ideas. And yes, dictators can kill individuals. But they can't kill ideas. And I'm confident in predicting. I don't know when, but I'm confident in predicting his ideas will prevail over Putin's ideas in the long run. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh, uh, it was Meg Rivers who said you can kill a man, but you cannot kill an idea. And uh, I think that he actually embodies that exact same thing. Uh, Alexei Navalny. Um, let me go to you, Charlie Sykes, because Donald Trump had the nerve. Um, and it is it is pretty uh, it takes a lot of nerve to compare yourself to Alexei Navalny, who sacrificed his life for his country because he has a patriot of his country. Donald Trump tried to overthrow the government of his country. Um, He might do better to compare himself to Putin um, when he himself has argued through his lawyers that he has the authority and right as president to use SEAL Team 6 to kill his political opponents. 
Putin just used a prison to kill his political opponents, allegedly. You have, you know, people that he praises, like Viktor Orban. That's who he uh, who mm-hmm. he respects. People like Xi Jinping uh, in China. People like um, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. That's who he respects. How dare he compare himself? Vic- Javier Millet, um, who wants to invade Guyana to steal their oil. Those are his friends. That's who he likes. What do you make of the fact that he dared to compare himself to somebody who martyred himself, was a martyr for the betterment of Russia? Well, it was obscene. Um, you know, as the ambassador pointed out, uh, you know, Alexei Navalny represented uh, two things very starkly. I think last week, number one was what real genuine courage looked like. And uh, two, um, highlighted uh, the the existence of evil um, in in Russia today. And the Vladimir Putin represents not just an authoritarian force, um, but he is a murderer, a murderer who has been defended and befriended by Donald Trump. So when Liz Cheney talked about the Putin wing of the Republican Party, she's talking about uh, something that has flowed directly from its leader, Donald Trump. And how obscene is it that Donald Trump spends so many days unable to even mention Navalny's name while he was hawking tacky gold $400 sneakers. Um, This is just another reminder of the absolute moral bankruptcy um, that was described in uh, Jonathan Carl's book, where you have um, this this, this world leader uh, who has been martyred, uh, murdered by Vladimir Putin. And all Donald Trump can think about is how can he make it about himself? How can he cast himself as a victim? How can he associate himself with a man of this kind of courage and vision, which he utterly and completely lacks. One of the things about Donald Trump is his inability to recognize the heroism of others, the courage of others. He can't recognize it in John McCain. He cannot recognize it in Navalny. So what he needs to do is to tear it down and make it all about himself. This was one of those moments where I think if, if we were not aware of the stakes of this year's elections, that that it does involve uh, the Putin wing of the Republican Party possibly getting back into the White House. The events of the last several days, I think, uh, have highlighted that in really stark and dramatic terms. Yeah, absolutely. Let me just correct myself. Uh, Millet is of Argentina, the one who is like Trump. Uh, I think they're doing abortion bans and such. It's Venezuela that wants to invade uh, Guyana. It's hard to keep all the dictators straight. To go back to you, Ambassador McFall, the Republicans seem very reluctant to help um, Ukraine defeat Russia. And, you know, like the old Soviet Union that um, uh, Putin would like to put back together, degrading their military via Ukraine without a single U.S. soldier having to lose their lives, you would think would be agreed upon by everyone to be good for U.S. national security, right? Russia can't beat Ukraine outright. They need us to help Ukraine lose. And it seems like Republicans want to help Ukraine lose. What do you make of that? And do you think that uh, Navalny's death might change some of their minds and make them stand up to Putin? Well, first, thanks to both of you for using the word evil. That is right. Putin is evil. And this is a fight between good and evil uh, with large, large consequences. If Putin prevails in Ukraine, I just got back from the Munich Security Conference meeting with lots of leaders from the eastern part of our alliance. And let me tell you, uh, it's the, the, the specter of the 1930s was hanging over all those conversations because first it's Ukraine, then it's Lithuania, then it's Poland. And it was, Michael, Americans, wake up. Do not repeat this history again. Those isolationist tendencies, the Lindberghs of the world saying, putting their heads in the sand. They look 
foolish. They look, uh, it, just go back and read them. Don't be that, Speaker Johnson. That's your fate if you don't take this action now. And the second thing I would say, uh, you know, in fights against good and evil, it's hard when you're far away. What can you do? You feel helpless. I know Yulia and people around here. How, what are they supposed to do against this evil person, Vladimir Putin, the day after, you know, just days after uh, he killed her husband? But members of Congress have it right in their hands. It's a piece of legislation that's already passed in the Senate. They can come back from their holiday and be on the right side of history and do good against evil. They don't have to do anything. And I met some of those members of Congress in Munich, and it's striking to me how nobody argues against me when I say that. They're just worried about Mr. Trump. And, and yeah. I just think you have to sometimes do what's right and worry about the consequences later. And they have this moment. So I just plead with Speaker Johnson, do the righteous thing. You don't get a chance in life very often to do the righteous thing. If you're voted out of the speaker, you know, we, a few weeks later, at least you had your shot to do something good. This is their shot. They need to do it now. Do it for the warriors in Ukraine and do it for Yulia Navalny and all of the supporters of Alexei Navalny. Um, instead of that, Charlie Sykes, here was the reaction from J.D. Vance. Quote, we know why Navalny died, because we know Putin is a brutal guy. But I know Putin was a brutal guy. I knew Putin was a brutal guy a year ago, and I know he'll be a brutal guy a year from now. Mike Johnson, as Congress debates the best path forward in the support of Ukraine, the United States and our partners must be using every means available to cut off Putin's ability to fund his unprovoked war in Ukraine and aggression against um, the Baltic states. But he doesn't want to actually pass the bill that would do that. You have Dinesh D'Souza, who's always got to weigh in. Navalny equals Trump. The plan of the Biden regime and the Democrats is to ensure their leading political opponent dies in prison. There's no difference between the two cases. That's what we've got from Republicans, Charlie. Well, to Dinesh's point, I mean, that is just complete toxic BS. Um, I'm, I'm editing myself there. But um, as the ambassador said, look, uh, Mike Johnson has a chance to actually answer Vladimir Putin back. He has the piece of legislation in his hand. He he is holding back on it because, number one, he is unlike uh, Navalny. He is a political coward so far. Uh, an overwhelming majority of members of the House would vote for that legislation. So he is blocking it because he is afraid of Donald Trump. He's afraid of losing his job. He's not afraid of being thrown into prison. He's afraid of going on to the, <laughs> the ash heap where other, look, he, he's not going to stay speaker for very long anyway. Yeah. So he's got to ask himself, how does he want to be remembered? What is important to him? What are what are the values yeah. that he is willing to sacrifice for? And so far, it is nothing. But again, it is it is a very stark moment. By the way, speaking of political cowardice, J.D. Vance yeah. um, refused to meet with the Ukrainian president. Uh, Zelensky, because he did not even yeah. want to be in the same room with you, did not want to look him in the eye. So we have more because Trump doesn't on top like it. Absolutely. Right. And this is a seven in 10 position. 70 plus percent of Americans want this done. Uh, Michael McFall, Charlie Sykes. Thank you both. Up next on the readout. Welcome to the grift shop. $400 sneakers, trading cards, a cologne we can only hope does not smell like the man himself. Trump's desperate attempts to cling to power are all about filling his own pockets. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. A lot of emotion. There's a lot of emotion in this room. Thank you. Thank you. This is something I've been talking about for 12 years, 13 years. And I think it's going to be a big success. That's the real deal. That's the real deal. That was the presumptive Republican presidential nominee and now shoe salesman Donald Trump. Facing a mix of boos and some cheers, not at a campaign event, but at an event called SneakerCon, where he showed up to hawk his latest licensing wares. And for the low, low price of $399, you too can wear these gaudy gold high tops emblazoned with a T on the side. Oh, that's not all. Apparently, you can also purchase a Victory 47 perfume and cologne at $99 a bottle. I'm sure the scent is delightful. Perhaps it's just a coincidence that it comes a day after a New York judge told Trump he owes more than $400 million to the state of New York from his civil fraud trial, including interest. But in truth, the sneakers, which some have dubbed Jan Sixes, and the cologne are just the latest grifts in Trump's long history of trying to get his faithful fans to hand over their hard-earned money so he can do things like avoid using whatever money that he actually has to pay judgments like these. In just over the past year, we've seen him hawk digital trading cards with him dressed up as all kinds of characters like a cowboy, a rock star, and a superhero with a whole different body and everything. He has pushed merchandise with his infamous mugshot photo from his Georgia indictment. That one is funny, given that they feature the slogan, never surrender, when the photo proves that he literally surrendered to authorities. I wonder if his supporters see the irony there. And from that same arraignment, he also has been hawking actual pieces of the suit he wore. And yet his cult following buys it up because who wouldn't want a ratty piece of a blue suit from a jail appearance? Apparently, some of his most devout followers are happy to just give him their money for nothing, with a GoFundMe page raising more than half a million dollars in just the past few days to help pay his mounting legal bills. Friday's ruling came as a result of the diligent work done by New York Attorney General Letitia James, catching Trump lying about being a wealthy billionaire all in an effort to get cheap loans. And I can understand those who may not see this New York case as all that significant, but here's why it is. Trump is not alone. Many in the wealthiest class try to get away with the same scheme, and it ultimately impacts us all. Simply put, it makes it harder for lenders to price risk, so they have to charge a higher premium to everybody. And if people like Trump aren't stopped, it will keep happening. We have to remember that with Donald Trump, everything he has built, whether in business or politics, is based on lies. It's all a facade done solely for his own benefit. 
That includes the fact-free insistence that he won the 2020 election, something that led to the January 6th insurrection, all in an effort for him to cling to power and keep his grift going. Perhaps it shouldn't be too surprising then to find out where Trump falls in a new presidential ranking from historians today, given that it is President's Day. And contrary to what he said last month, Trump might want to be seen as more like Herbert Hoover. I'll tell you why next. When there's a crash, I hope it's going to be during this next 12 months, because I don't want to be Herbert Hoover. The one president, I just don't want to be Herbert Hoover. Okay, okay, that was Donald Trump actively rooting against the well-being of this country and the American people, saying he hopes the economy crashes this year because he, quote, doesn't want to be Herbert Hoover. Well, Trump got his wish. A new poll out today shows that he is not Herbert Hoover. He's actually way, way worse. The poll of historians and scholars ranks every president in U.S. history from best to worst. And while Herbert Hoover received the 36th spot, Trump is ranked dead last at 45. Behind the likes of Richard Nixon, Franklin Pierce, even William Henry Harrison, who died 31 days after taking office. Joining me now is NBC News presidential historian Michael Beschloss. <laughs> Michael, you got to be pretty terrible to be ranked below James Buchanan, uh, Civil War failure, uh, pre-Civil War failure, and a guy who only lived for 31 days as president. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'd say so. And Richard Nixon, who would have been impeached and probably put in jail if it weren't for a pardon by Gerald Ford, don't you think? I have to begin yeah, by asking, am I actually getting to talk to the number one New York Times bestselling author of <laughs> Medgar and Murley as of this week? Everyone give their congratulations I, to Joy. That's not an easy you. thing to do and the book deserves it. Thank you. And I think it was your blurb. I think your blurb did it. I do. I do believe oh, that's no. what did it. Um, I wish. Glad to take the credit, uh, but it doesn't deserve it. Thank you so much, Michael. I appreciate you. You are a good friend. You are a good guy. Um, well, let's talk. Let's talk about these rankings. I'm obsessed with these rankings, by the way. I cannot wait for them I to come too. out every year. I don't know if you're on this committee, but I'm obsessed with it. No, I'm Here not. are the top 10. You're not on it. Well, here are the top 10. Abraham Lincoln, who always ranks up the top, usually George Washington sure. here at the top. FDR moving up into number two. He moved up. Yep. Jefferson's still there, despite the gulag with an enslaved person under his bedroom, his right. bedroom. Barack Obama jumps up to number seven. Harry Truman, Eisenhower. Kennedy standing up there at 10. Lyndon Johnson at nine. Do you agree with these rankings? Uh, I, I'd have some differences. It's hard to compare presidents across the generations. You know, they all had different problems, different times. They were living at times that certain ideas were more important uh, than others. I mean, for instance, Theodore Roosevelt, I don't know whether when historians are going to wake up to the fact that the guy used terribly racist rhetoric, very white supremacist. The 1912 uh, Theodore Roosevelt Progressive Party Bull Moose platform was for segregation of the races in America. So I'm not sure how long that's going to stick. Right. I mean, Woodrow Wilson used to always get in the top 10. He used to drive me nuts. I'm like, this guy was a horribly no racist monster, but he would and he dropped out. Right. So he's gone down. I'm interested in some of the movement. Uh, Andrew Jackson used to get ranked highly. He's gone, dropped out of the top 10, which I think is a good thing. He's now at 21. He's down 12 places since 2015. And as I mentioned, Woodrow Wilson, he's down five points since 2015. Right. Some of those are good. What do you think about the idea of Barack Obama being so high? Because I think he used to be 11 and now he's seven. He's moved up. 
Well, I think he has moved up, and I think he will move up further. And as far as Andrew Jackson is concerned, it shows that you know, historians can do the right thing. It takes us a while. He was president in the early 19th century. But, you know, a liberal like Arthur Schlesinger, the historian, wrote a glowing book about Andrew Jackson. LBJ had Andrew Jackson's portrait in the Oval Office. But we now, given what people are justifiably more sensitive to, this was the guy who did to Native Americans who was responsible for the Trail of Tears, and he was a slaveholder. Why should he be that yeah. high on the list? Agreed. Let's talk about Joe Biden. Joe Biden is at 15. What do you think ultimately his ranking ends up being? Well, I think it is possible, and I'm not 14. saying that he's Harry Truman, not saying that he's FDR, Fox News, hold your fire. Uh, but what I would say is that people may very well say that there were elements of greatness in Joe Biden that a lot of people did not expect that were actually rather similar of Harry Harry Truman, who had decades of experience, loved democracy, willing to make tough calls. Yeah. And let let me show you this. There was a Nazi march this weekend in Nashville that really was was. reminiscent of what happened in the 1930s. We are uh, in the year um, uh, that is reminiscent of 1924, the year that the Democratic National Convention was nicknamed the Klan Bake. Um, That was three years before Donald Trump's father got arrested at a Klan riot. Um, So that period in the 1920s feels a lot like today. Do you agree with that? I totally agree. Uh, 1924 was the apex of the power of the Ku Klux Klan in America. Half of the Democratic delegates at that convention were either members of, leaders of, or controlled by the Ku Klux Klan. The Democratic Party, in contrast today, was a Southern racist party. Thank God we've come that far, but the Nazis and the Klan are still there. Uh, the last thing I've got to bring up, because it is a little bit fun. So the rankings by Republican, by ideology, Donald Trump among the Republicans who made the rankings of, of best and worst presidents, they ranked him at 41. The Democrats ranked him at the bottom, 45, independents, bottom, conservatives, 43, liberals, 45, moderates, 45. Everyone agreed, including the Republican rankers, that he's terrible. He couldn't get higher than 41, even with the Republican rankers. What do you make of that? Yeah, I just can't imagine why someone who was twice impeached <laughs> and wanted to suspend the Constitution and waged a coup d'etat, an insurrection that might have led to the deaths of leaders of Congress would rank so low. But could I ask a final <laughs> question of your Joy? Yes. In honor of President's Day, may I bring yeah. you a bottle of Donald Trump perfume? <laughs> uh, I might actually toss that out and or regift. If you bring me that, I no, might regift. No gold shoes. No gold shoes. <laughs> yeah, I think not. I think not. Uh, Michael okay. Beslas will regift. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, my <laughs> very much. Goodbye. Thank you, my friend. Good night. And coming up, the Poor People's Campaign aims to wake the sleeping giant by spearheading a new effort to mobilize millions of low-income voters across the U.S. Bishop William Barber joins me next. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow.
Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators. Now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. One social program, food stamps, had grown from a $70 million experimental program in 1965 to an 11 and a quarter billion dollar program in 1981. The government was draining off America's productivity and placing an, an enormous drag on the economy. I think it's good for the poor to begin to replace welfare with the work ethic, and we ought to recognize that. The reality of Social Security, it's a legal Ponzi scheme. It's not enough that Republicans have waged war on poor Americans for decades now, but they're also committed to pretending that they care about poor people, even as they aim to slash everything from health care to food assistance programs for millions, which is why tomorrow repairs of the breach, faith leaders and organizers will kick off a major effort to mobilize millions of low income voters this year who are often less likely to participate. Rallies are also planned for March 2nd in Raleigh, North Carolina, and 30 other states pledging to register voters and wake the sleeping giant of poor and low-wealth people. Joining me now is Bishop William Barber, co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and professor and founding director of the Center for Public Theology and Public Policy at Yale Divinity School. Bishop Barber, always good to see you. We're going to call this a Moral Monday because you are here on this day, this President's Day. Tell me what you're planning on doing and why. Well, you know, you just showed that clip, Joy. So they say that they want to cut this, but then those same people stand against raising the minimum wage to a living wage. They stand against health care for all. So what's happening? If the sheer size, 85 million poor and low-wage voters in this country are eligible to vote, some 23 million didn't vote in the last election, and there's not a state now, particularly in battleground states, where if you were to mobilize 20 percent of poor and low-wage voters who are already registered, that you could not overcome the margin of victory. So on March the 2nd, uh, tomorrow we're going into state houses, because we're doing this at state houses, launching it. And then on March 2nd, in 33 states, the District of Columbia, we're launching it at 40 two-week effort to reach 15 million poor and low-wage voters in a very targeted way. What I mean by that, Joy, if you look at, for instance, the margin of victory in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, and in Michigan, and combine the margin of victory, uh, it's 240,000 votes. If you subtract the 170,000 margin in North Carolina, uh, it's 70,000 votes. The number of poor and low-wage voters in those states that didn't vote is 4.3 million. Yeah. 4. Let me, let me get—you talked about North Carolina. You talked about North Carolina. Let, let's go through this. This is numbers that we got from repairs of the breach. In North Carolina, mm-hmm. there are 3.4 million poor and low-wage eligible voters. Mm-hmm. That includes 2.3 million white voters, 107,000 Latino voters, 26,000 Asian American voters, 885,000 black voters, and 35,000 indigenous voters. Mm-hmm. Right now, what is the turnout like among those kinds of voters, because it does seem, you said, they account for 41.5 percent of the electorate in that state, North Carolina. 
Well, it's a curious turnout. On the one hand, we turn out, but on the other hand, millions have not voted. But just take North Carolina, for instance. In the last election, the margin of victory was only 170,000 votes for the presidential election. Over a million poor and low wealth voters did not vote. So if you were able to talk to those voters and they want to hear about ending poverty, they want to hear about living mm-hmm. wages, because 40 percent of that state are people who work every day for less than a living wage. They want to hear about where do you stand on public education, health care. If you talk to them, which is the number one reason our studies say they don't vote and you mobilize mm-hmm. just 18 percent. Not 20 percent, just 18 percent of that group that did not vote, that overcomes the margin of victory in the presidential election. The sheer number of this, the fact that there's not a battleground state in this country where if you mobilize 20 percent of poor and low wealth people, regardless of their race, creed and color, around an agenda for living wages, health care, protecting women's rights, fully funding public education, that they, that power could not transform political outcomes. That's what we see, but it's, it's going to take an effort. That's why we're doing this 42 weeks in 33 states, District of Columbia, every race, creed, and color, religious leaders, and others. We're joining together and saying we will not ignore this sleeping giant. What we're saying, Joy, is in the 60th anniversary of Freedom Summer, we need a resurrection, not an insurrection. We need a movement vote and not a political vote. And poor and low wealth people have to recognize now in a democracy, you must flex your power. You cannot sit out. You cannot sit back. And, 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 and Joe, when you look at it, as I said, it's not as though this is the biggest lift in the world. We're not talking about 50 percent. We're saying if you just do 20 percent. Around an agenda, that 20 percent can shake up the entire political calculus in this country. Yeah. But I could, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you yeah. your thoughts on what's happening in Gaza as uh, Rafah is about to be inundated by the Israeli military and uh, Palestinians are dying at a, an incredible yeah. clip, more than 28,000 so far. Let me speak to you as a pastor, a bishop. I want, I'm not speaking as a politician. You have to morally be against the indiscriminate killing of women and children and innocent people. Period. I don't care if Hamas did it or if Netanyahu did it. Even if you believe in I for an I, two for two, which I don't, that doesn't mean you have you can have disproportionate destruction. But more right. importantly, the scriptures are clear. Isaiah 10 says, woe unto those who legislate evil and rob the poor and make women and children pray. Proverbs 6 says God hates the killing of innocent people. What we know from biblical history is whenever kings and rulers got out of hand, like Netanyahu is doing with Mm -hmm. all of this killing his regime and what Hamas Mm -hmm. did, prophets have to rise up from right there. The prophets always rose up and said no. Whenever there was innocent killing and indiscriminate. And that yeah. is a moment yeah. where we must speak prophetically and morally now. We cannot stand Say, for this. Amen. Amen. Bishop William Barber, thank you so much. I appreciate you. Um, and still ahead. Thank you. And still ahead, an Alabama court rules that frozen embryos, um, get this, are children. In the latest example of right-wing extremism on reproductive rights, Aaron Haynes joins me after this.
In today's episode of American Dystopia, the Alabama Supreme Court has ruled that frozen embryos are, quote, children. The justices are allowing three couples to proceed with a lawsuit under the Wrongful Death of a Minor Act against a fertility clinic that accidentally destroyed their frozen embryos. The ruling is rife with religious language from Alabama's Constitution, noting that, quote, even before birth, all human beings bear the image of God and their lives cannot be destroyed without effacing his glory. So much for separation of church and state. It's a decision that could have very dangerous implications for the future of fertility treatment. And it's a timely reminder that reproductive rights are very much on the menu in this year's election. It comes as the New York Times is reporting that Donald Trump has privately expressed support for a national 16-week abortion ban. His reasoning for choosing that number doesn't seem to be rooted in anything beyond him liking it because it's a round number. You really cannot make this stuff up. All of this, again, shows that it has never been more important to elevate the voices of women. And a new documentary premiering tonight on PBS profiles a news organization with a mission of doing exactly that. Breaking the News follows The 19th, a nonprofit female and non-binary led newsroom with a mission of delivering diverse reporting on gender and politics. And joining me now is our friend Aaron Haynes, featured in the Breaking the News, in Breaking the News as a founder and editor-at-large of The 19th. She's also the host of their new podcast, The Amendment. Aaron, my friend, congratulations on the doc. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to let you comment on this abortion stuff. Oklahoma now also has a Right to Human Life Act that defines life as beginning of an exception, creates a, a state database of women who had abortions, makes doctors submit a written justification for b- performing an abortion and prohibits emergency contraception. Your thoughts? Yeah, Joy, this is the reality in the two years since the fall of Roe. This is the post-Dobbs reality that, that decisions are being made state by state and, and in the courts literally day by day, hour by hour. The situation is changing on the ground for millions of Americans. And that is why we know at the 19th and why we are continuing to cover the reality that abortion is going to be on the ballot this November for millions of women. We've seen that since the fall of Roe in election cycle after election cycle, women making their voices heard at the ballot saying that they do not appreciate their rights being uh, taken away. Amen. All right. Now, roll clip. (laughs) Roll clip, Sterling Brown. There's some people who feel like journalists shouldn't vote. I mean, I'm a black person before I'm a journalist, so, like, that's not really an option for me. Um, Basically, it just took four hours to vote here in Philly. People do all these stories talking about how it's like people are in line because it's just worth it for them to cast their ballot. Well, of course it's worth it. I mean, they're citizens. This is their right to democracy. But like the idea that this is not also voter suppression, I mean, that's exactly what this is. I know that lady. That was you, Aaron Haynes. Tell us what we're going to learn in this doc. Sorry for the profanity, Mom. Um, so listen, this is really the journey of our newsroom over uh, you know our, the first uh, three years of, of our inception. We launched in January 2020, a week before the Iowa caucuses. And so this is the story of the evolution of the 19th. We're a newsroom named for the 19th Amendment. Uh, you can look it up if you don't know what the 19th Amendment is for. Everybody should know uh, what the 19th Amendment is. It's, it was founded for. But uh, it is also the journey of our uh, democracy over, over the last three years. And so really, frankly, uh, a pretty stark look back. At, at, at where we have been as a country, and uh, I cannot say how more how urgent it feels uh, for me that this is this is premiering tonight uh, as we are headed into once again a very consequential election for our democracy, for our society, and frankly for our profession. 
Well, I'm going to mess up the quiz and tell everyone we know the 19th is, of course, the right of women to vote. But on I the know, 19th you know. newsroom, you guys have the you have the asterisk on there because I will yes. note that it was 22 members of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated who wanted to join the suffrage march, the massive suffrage march um, to try to get women's suffrage and were rejected and even beaten by some of the white suffragettes and some men who came to say we don't want black women to be a part of this. So this is about race and gender when we're talking about these rights. Um, and yes. the 19th covers both of those things. Absolutely. And, and, and the asterisk, which is in our logo uh, for exactly that, the omission of the black women who stood shoulder to shoulder with white suffragists as, as they you know stepped over us on their way to the franchise. Uh, it's a reminder of who remains unseen and unheard in our democracy. Uh, women who are half the population, half the electorate still treated like a special interest group. We don't believe that. We believe that all issues are women's issues, but also that LGBTQ plus people, people of color, anybody who still remains marginalized in our democracy, uh, that's who the 19th is focused on. That's who we are still trying to bring into this conversation, into our electorate and into participating in our politics uh, in this year and, and in all the years. Uh, democracy matters and it is absolutely on the ballot. And a quick final question. Does having a woman vice president, how has that changed the way women um, that you've been reporting on look at politics, if it has at all? You know, I think we have to pay attention to the fact that the most powerful woman in the country uh, is the most second powerful person in the country. Uh, that matters. That representation matters. And I think it is shape, helping to shape our politics. Indeed. Aaron Haynes, uh, a brilliant, brilliant journalist uh, and, and also my friend and friend of the show. I'm so proud of you. Cannot wait to see the documentary. Thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout, everyone. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC.